Well, welcome once again to Systematic Theology. We're in session number 35 tonight, and we're on the um, still looking at the topic of redemption in our journey through systematic theology. Redemption is the deliverance of God's people from the desperate situation we were in due to sin. And we use the word redemption in a comprehensive way to refer to the work of God who intervened in our desperate situation when we could not, and indeed, we didn't even have the will to do anything ourselves. We were in bondage to sin. We were under a harsh taskmaster, and we could not free ourselves. Instead, if we were to be delivered, God had to intervene and free us. We were in debt to the law because of our sin. Our debt was so great, we couldn't begin to pay it. If we were to be released from that sin debt, God had to intervene and provide payment for us. By God's justice, we deserved death for our sin. If we were to escape that sentence of death, God had to intervene in a way that also satisfied his perfect justice. And we learned that this intervention is the work of God alone. The vocabulary word for that is monergism. It means that redemption is not some kind of joint project where I have merit to bring to the project and I can sort of help and do my part. God alone intervened. So redemption, it can be divided into two aspects. First, there's the aspect of Christ accomplishing redemption for us. And this revolves, this accomplishment revolves around the central axis of Christ's atonement, his work on the cross. And we just spent some time studying that in previous sessions. And the second aspect of redemption, once Christ accomplished redemption, specifically for his people, is the application of redemption to his people by the Holy Spirit. So far, we've been looking at the accomplishment of redemption, and we're going to continue down that path tonight. And in upcoming studies, we'll look at the work of the Holy Spirit in applying redemption to each of Christ's sheep, sheep given by the Father to the Son, known to God from eternity past. There's an aspect of the atonement accomplished by Christ that I want to explore next. And it is a vital part of the atonement. And that aspect of the atonement is the obedience of Christ during his earthly walk, his work of accomplishing redemption. The obedience of Christ, the God-man, during his earthly walk is usually split into two categories. And those categories are what we call Christ's active obedience and Christ's passive obedience. So what do we mean by those two terms? What do we mean by Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience? Okay, well, let's look first at Christ's active obedience. Christ's active obedience is his perfect obedience to the law of God during his earthly walk. Christ obeyed the law of God perfectly in thought, word, and deed. Christ, as the God-man during his earthly ministry, he lived under the law, and he kept it perfectly. He kept the law flawlessly thought, word, and deed flawlessly. He left nothing undone that perfect obedience to the law would require. Christ never violated anything that the law prohibited. Now, in the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil, Scripture shows us this intense period of Christ's active obedience, an especially intense period. And this particular intense series of temptations in the wilderness should remind us of the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam failed in the garden, but Christ succeeded in the wilderness. Christ, as the God-man, had to completely obey the law on our behalf. 
if any of his people were to be saved. That's because all of us in the state in which we were born were guilty of Adam's sin of disobedience. Adam represented all of us, all of mankind in the garden. When Adam disobeyed and fell, all of mankind fell with him because he represented all of us. He was our man in Washington, we could say. Then not only are we guilty of Adam's sin at our birth, we then go on to commit sins of our own. We covered this back in session 22 when we were looking at the doctrine of man. But a quick review is that all of mankind stood with Adam in the garden, either for obedience and reward or disobedience and loss. The guilt of Adam's sinful disobedience in the garden was reckoned or accounted to all of mankind who came after Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which is where we'll be first. Romans 5, 12 tells us of this linkage between all of mankind and the federal head of mankind, Adam. It says in Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. If we're going to be saved, we have a desperate need for a new federal head. We need a new man in Washington to represent us. As long as we're still represented by Adam, Adam's disobedience will be credited to us. We need to be taken away from being represented by the first Adam, and we need to be represented by a new Adam, a second Adam who obeyed perfectly. Only once we're represented by the one who is perfectly obedient can we be accounted as obedient before God. We are accounted as obedient not because we've personally obeyed the law perfectly, but because Christ perfectly obeyed the law on, on our behalf as our federal head, our man in Washington, our representative. The law, what does it say? It says, do this and live. The law says, do this and live. This is what the first Adam was under in the garden. Obedience meant life for him and all humanity that stood with him and he represented. Disobedience meant death for Adam and all humanity that he represented. Do this and live. Being under the law means being under, under this obligation to personally and perfectly keep the law. We can see the law's demand of do this and live by reading about Jesus' conversation with a lawyer who is an expert in the law. If you'd like to follow along, I'm going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 29. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This lawyer, an expert in the law, should have known what to do if he wanted to gain eternal life by his own efforts. 
You should have known about the law's demand. Do this and live. Jesus asked the lawyer to summarize the law, and he does so correctly. Love God and neighbor perfectly. Jesus then simply says this, do this and you will live. The lawyer must have had some misgivings, some proper doubts about whether he was really a perfect keeper of the law. Because verse 29 says he wanted to justify himself. He was looking for a loophole from the law's demand of perfection. But there is no loophole. The law's demand is do this and live. We must have kept the law personally and perfectly. And our federal head, Adam, must also have obeyed perfectly, or we will not have eternal life if we want to obtain it by our own law keeping. What's the only alternative? A new federal head who obeyed perfectly on our behalf. But this is a cause to rejoice. For those of us in Christ, we have a new federal head, Christ, who has kept the law perfectly in his active obedience. This principle of the disobedience of the first Adam and the active obedience of the second Adam, Christ, is shown in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ's mission during his earthly walk was to completely obey the law, to not only be sinless, but also righteous. And that's shown in Jesus' interaction with John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, which is where we'll be next. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized by John. And John rightly said that the roles, well, you know what? The roles really need to be reversed here. Jesus had no need for John's baptism of repentance. Instead, John needed to be baptized by Jesus. Here, Jesus answers John's objection. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Jesus answered the objection by telling John, Let it be so now. Jesus stated that John's, uh, John's objection had merit to it. But there was more at stake than what John said. Jesus' motive was to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to actively accomplish every righteous action. That is Christ's active obedience. There was one man in the beginning, the first Adam, who disobeyed and many were made sinners. Then there is the second Adam, who for Christians is the new federal head, the new representative by the obedience of the second Adam, Christ, righteousness is credited to believers. There was a theologian of the early 20th century, J. Gresham Machen. And on the day that he died in 1937, he sent one last telegram. It read, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. 
no hope without it. Machen's hope as he was about to go into the presence of the Lord was this doctrine, the knowledge that Christ's perfect obedience was credited to him. The words of that telegram are Machen's last recorded words. The obedience of Christ is in two categories. We just looked at the first category, the active obedience of Christ, his perfect keeping of the law on our behalf. And the second category is what we call the passive obedience of Christ. Both categories of Christ's obedience were absolutely necessary for Christ to make satisfaction for his people. What is Christ's passive obedience? It was the obedience of Christ voluntarily suffering for his people. He voluntarily suffered being rejected and insulted during his life. He voluntarily suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. He voluntarily suffered on the cross. He voluntarily suffered in obedience for us. So when we use the word, we use the word passive in that phrase, passive obedience, this doesn't mean that Christ wasn't fully engaged with this obedience with real effort or that it wasn't a real work on our behalf. In fact, I've heard it said that in this case, the term passive doesn't come from English, but from the Latin for suffering. Let's look at a couple of passages. One is a prophecy of Christ from the Old Testament, and another is a fulfillment of that in the Gospels. First, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. This is a prophecy of the suffering servant who was to come 700 years forward from Isaiah's time. And the prophecy of this suffering servant is a foretelling of Christ's passive obedience for his people. I'll read from Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 to 7. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Verse 5 speaks of Christ knowing the will of the Father and obeying. It says that Christ was not rebellious. He fully obeyed. He did not turn backward. Then verse 6 begins to detail the suffering that Christ submitted to. And then verse 7 speaks of the Father helping the God-man in his suffering. And here's what I want to get, give some emphasis to in verse 7. I have set my face like a flint. I have set my face like a flint. Christ had a resolve as hard as flint to fully obey and voluntarily endure the suffering. Now let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. Here we see the fulfillment of Christ setting his face like flint, which was foretold through Isaiah 700 years before. I'll read from Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 to 53. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because 
his face was set toward Jerusalem. The Greek word here for set, when the passage says that his face was set toward Jerusalem, has the meaning of being fixed firmly, being inwardly firm and committed. When the time was coming near for the events of the cross and the ascension, Jesus firmly and with great determination set his face toward the place of the cross, Jerusalem. That should remind us of what we read a few minutes ago in Isaiah chapter 50. In the prophecy of Isaiah, Jesus set his face like a flint, knowing he would give his back to those who strike and his cheeks to those who would pull out the beard. In the book of Philippians, which is where we'll be next, Paul gives a summary of this passive obedience of Christ. I'll read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Here, Paul is writing about the incarnation of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Christ's earthly walk, he veiled his divine glory. He was subject to the weaknesses of humanity, such as hunger, thirst, but not sin. And he was subject to poverty, persecution, and the scorn of sinful men. But verse 8 tells us something important. He humbled himself. Christ did all this voluntarily in order to save his people. Then verse 8 goes on. It describes the furthest extreme of his voluntary humiliation. He was obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, but the death of the cross. The death of the cross was the most painful and shameful form of execution that the Romans could inflict. It's been said that one who was crucified died a thousand deaths. Cicero called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting penalty. The cross was so severe in torture and shame that it was not inflicted on Roman citizens of the, or, or any of the upper classes. It finally came to be called the slave's punishment. And not only was the scourging of Christ and his crucifixion a torment, but what was much worse was Christ carrying all of our sins to the cross. Those sins laid upon him and taking the wrath of God that was actually due to us. The method of execution by hanging on a tree was not only a shame before men, but it pointed to the wrath of God upon that person. As we see in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, which is where I'll be next. Deuteronomy 21. I'll read from that to show the significance of this means of death. Deuteronomy 21, I'll start in verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. 
It was absolutely necessary for Christ to voluntarily be obedient to this method of death and the divine curse that came with it if we were to be saved. I'll quickly read Galatians 3.13 to show this. Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We cannot be redeemed from the law's curse on us. The curse that comes with failure to keep all that the law demands unless Christ, in obedience, took that divine curse for us. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. The extreme, absolute obedience of Christ to the point of death on the cross might remind us of Christ's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll read from Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 and 39, for insight into the level of great suffering and obedience as Christ contemplated the wrath that he was to suffer for our sins. Matthew 26, starting in verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' suffering was extreme at this point, yet he still declared his obedience to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. This was the great extreme of the obedience of Christ. He was completely obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the work of Christ, the God-man, on our behalf can be summarized by Christ's obedience. Theologians speak of this obedience in two categories, active obedience and passive obedience. And this is vitally important to Christ accomplishing redemption for us and the Holy Spirit applying redemption to us. And we'll get into this in a future session, but as a preview, our redemption depends on Christ's active obedience, his perfect obedience to the law being credited to us when we are saved. Our redemption also depends on Christ's passive obedience, his obedience in going to the cross because our sins were accounted to him at the cross where he made atonement for those sins. This is what the reformers referred to as the marvelous exchange, the marvelous exchange. As Christians, we are in Christ. He is our federal head, so our sins were accounted to Christ at the cross and atoned for there by his passive obedience and his active obedience, his perfect righteousness under the law is accounted to us by God's legal declaration. In the court of heaven, the judge declares us not guilty because of Christ and also declares us righteous because of Christ. A passage that almost poetically states this marvelous exchange is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Christ knew no sin. He never committed a sin. But the first aspect of the marvelous exchange is that Christ took our sins. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Then it says that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, in his passive obedience of suffering and the cross, took our sins. Because of his active obedience, his living of a perfect life of obedience under the law, that obedience can be accounted to us. So that in Christ, we become the righteousness of God. Next, let's consider a question that may have come up in our minds as we contemplate our past sins and the sins we've committed since being saved. As Christians, we know that our sins have been atoned for and they're no longer credited to us. We will no longer be judged for our sins. But it may sometimes happen that the devil or our conscience will bring up a particular sin and suggest that maybe that one is not really forgiven. Even though we've repented of that sin, brought it before God for forgiveness through the work of Christ, and we know that our conscience should now be free of that sin, we're still bothered by doubt or even tormented by doubt. If you, as a Christian, as one who is in Christ, the second Adam, instead of being in the first Adam, if you're in doubt about whether there's one sin in your life that is unforgiven, Think first of the cross, but then think of one other thing. That one thing, that one event is the resurrection of Christ. If Christ's atonement did not fully deal with every sin of his people, then death would have continued to hold Christ in its grip. One place where we see the comfort of looking to Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that every one of our sins are forgiven is in Romans chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. Romans 4. 23 to 25. And this is part of a section where Paul is explaining that Abraham was not justified before God on the basis of his works, but by grace through faith. Abraham had faith in the promise, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 4, beginning in verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Verse 23 tells us that it wasn't only Abraham who benefited from justi justification by grace through faith. Verse 24 goes on and says we have commonality with Abraham. We too, as, as Christians, have righteousness accounted to us by grace through faith. What do we have faith in? Verse 24 tells us that saving faith believes that God raised Jesus from the dead in resurrection. Verse 25, it gives a whole story. Christ was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins. But what happened after Jesus died? On the third day, God raised him from the dead in resurrection. And just as Christ was delivered up for our trespasses, he was raised from the dead for our justification. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead proves that his atonement was completely accepted by the Father. 
If the atonement had failed to deal with even one sin from one of God's people, this would show that the atonement was not accepted and the resurrection would not have occurred. As verse 25 states, God raised Christ for our justification. The resurrection proves that he satisfied the claims of the law of God on our behalf. And therefore, God's people can be justified. I'll read from Acts chapter 2, verse 24, where Peter declares this during his sermon at Pentecost. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible for him to be held by it. It was impossible for Christ to be held by death for several reasons. First, it was the decree of God from eternity that Christ would be raised. Also, it was impossible for the kingly rule of Christ to be canceled permanently by death. But it was also impossible for death to hold Christ because every sin of every one of God's people had been paid at the cross. Because every sin was paid for at the cross, the Father accepted the substitutionary atonement, and it was not possible that death could hold Christ. The theologian Gerhardus Voss wrote this about the resurrection being the proof that the atonement completely took away every sin of God's people. He said, By raising Christ from death, God, as the supreme judge, set his seal to the absolute perfection and completeness of his atoning work. The resurrection is a public announcement to the world that the penalty of death has been borne by Christ to its bitter end. Has your conscience accused you as a Christian of a sin that you're tempted to think that perhaps it can't be forgiven? Look to two things to quiet your soul, the cross and the resurrection. As Paul declared in Romans, Christ was delivered up to the cross for your trespasses. Then look to the resurrection. Christ was raised for your justification. The historical fact of Christ's resurrection proves that all of your sins, every last one, even that one that troubles you, has been forgiven. Because the Father has accepted the atonement, death could not hold Christ. Now let's move on to a topic that I put off until tonight that we began to explore in a previous study, and that's the topic of Christ as holding the office of high priest. In a previous study, we looked at the offices of Christ, or we began looking at the offices of Christ and how Christ holds the offices of prophet and king. But I skipped Christ's office of priest at that time because I think that that office fits in this section better since we're covering Christ's work of redemption. Just to review, what is this truth of the offices of Christ all about? For the full explanation, we covered it in session 31 back in December of last year. But the short explanation is that the offices of Christ are official positions that Christ has been appointed to carry out the work of his kingdom. An office comes with responsibility and the necessary power, authority, and resources to carry out the responsibility of the office. An office holder must be appointed and authorized for that office. Christ holds the offices of prophet, priest, and king in order to carry out 
his rule of what we call his mediatorial kingdom, his mediatorial kingdom. And we looked at the definition of the mediatorial kingdom that the theologian Burkhoff gave. Burkhoff wrote, in general, we may define the mediatorial kingship of Christ as his official power to rule all things in heaven and on earth for the glory of God and for the execution of God's purpose of salvation. Each of the offices of prophet, priest, king were prefigured in the Old Testament. There were holders of the offices in the Old Testament which were types of Christ that was yet to come. The offices of the Old Testament looked forward to the perfect holder of these offices, which is Christ himself. What exactly is this office of priesthood that Christ fulfills? We can begin looking for the answer in the book of Hebrews, which is a rich source of revelation about Christ's office of high priest. And we're going to turn first to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. This one verse gives a definition of the high priesthood. Hebrews 5.1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So first the high priest acts on behalf of someone. He is a representative. What does a representative do? He acts on behalf of someone, representing them to someone else. Hebrews 5.1 tells us that the role of the high priest is to act on behalf of men, to represent them before God. What that should tell us is that mankind outside of Christ cannot just approach God on their own terms. The fact that we need a high priest who, as the verse says, acts on our behalf, tells us something of our great need. There are things related to mankind, things pertaining to God that must be fulfilled. Those things must be fulfilled by the high priest. That is, in kind of a neat package, the office of the high priest. There are things related to mankind, things pertaining to God, that must be fulfilled if we are to be saved. Now, there's a kind of divide in how people in the world out there see the relationship between man and God. Modern society tends to think that, well, God exists for our sake. We have needs, and we want God to fulfill our needs, to make sure that our well-being is satisfied. This modern view has no use for the truth that the atonement is a satisfaction for our sins, where the atonement is a substitute for the penalty that would otherwise fall on us. Modern society thinks God exists to satisfy our wants, so they have false theories of the atonement that we looked at back in session 33. The false theory called the moral influence theory holds that Christ's sacrifice wasn't a substitution for us. It was just an object lesson for us, showing the value of truth and duty. Because of this object lesson, we are motivated to turn over a new leaf and live differently. Another false theory of the atonement is the moral government theory. In that theory, once again, it's not God's just wrath that is satisfied by a substitute, but the cross was just a demonstration of how seriously God takes sin. And now that we've been shown kind of how serious in this demonstration that sin really is, well, God can now sort of relax his law toward us. 
Now, what these false theories of the atonement have in common is the idea that God exists simply to meet our need. But the truth is that the priestly office is necessary not so that God can serve man by catering to our felt needs, but instead God has demands from his justice that must be satisfied. Looking again at Hebrews 5.1, the high priest is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, as the New American Standard translates it, things pertaining to God. God is the one who must be satisfied because of our sins and because of his perfect justice. We'll look at another passage in Hebrews now, in chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Sort of parallels Hebrews 5.1. Hebrews 5.1 speaks of the necessity of the high priest being appointed for men in things pertaining to God. And this next passage tells us what are these things pertaining to God. Hebrews 2.16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. The things pertaining to God. The work of the high priest in service to God is to make propitiation for sins. What does propitiation mean? It means to turn away God's righteous wrath. The great work of the high priest is to make atonement for our sins. This atonement, the work of the cross, was the only way to bring sinful men at enmity with God to a place where the saved have peace with God. One place we can look to see someone who knew that he needed a mediator, someone to represent him before God, is in the book of Job, which is where we'll be next. The book of Job. Job struggled with the question of his need for a mediator. We're going to turn to Job chapter 9. We'll see how Job, in his suffering and his struggle, voices his need for one who will represent him before the Almighty God. We'll read first from Job chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Now here, one of Job's friends, Bildad, had just given his advice that Job should simply repent of this unknown sin that Bildad kind of assumed that Job had committed. Then he further advises that Job should just appear before God and plead for mercy. Back in the previous chapter, Bildad summarizes his advice. He said, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. But Job realizes the impossibility of just coming before God on his own behalf and establishing himself as pure and upright. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 9, Job answers this. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him one in a thousand times. Job begins his answer to Bildad by agreeing with him on one point. Truly I know that it is so. Job agrees that God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. But then Job laments 
the impossibility of representing himself by himself before God. It reminds me of the famous saying that the lawyer who represents himself in court has a fool for a client. Job knew that he could not represent himself. He's pointing to two things that prevent him from just appearing before God toe-to-toe, so to speak. First, there's an infinite distance between the nature of God, divine nature, and the nature of man, since man's only a created being. There's too much of a gulf to bridge there. Job says if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. The contest between Job and God is infinitely lopsided. The second reason that Job cannot represent himself before God and protest concerning his innocence is in this phrase, but how can a man be in the right before God? God is so pure that how can one establish his own righteousness? Another of Job's friends, Eliphaz, said the same thing earlier. And I'll read from chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. Job 4, beginning in verse 17. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Job is desperately seeking vindication from God and realizes that if God does not vindicate him, he cannot just demand it. He objects, but how can a man be in the right before God? Job isn't accusing God of having this some rule that might makes right. Instead, Job knows that God's divine nature is elevated far above his own human nature. And both Eliphaz and Job realize that sinful man cannot be pure before his maker based on man's own efforts. In chapter 9, verses 32 and 33, Job now gets to the heart of the matter, his need for representation before God. I'll read from Job's anguished cry. Job 9, beginning in verse 32. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Man needs an arbiter between man and God. Job could not approach God on his own. God has divine nature. Job does not. God is infinitely above Job. God is mighty. Job is weak. God is absolutely pure. But you know, even though Job knew he was good compared to other men, he also knew he was not pure as God is pure. The word in verse 33 that we see translated as arbiter, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, It's the same Greek word used in the New Testament for mediator, mediator. And that Greek word is used of Christ in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, where it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The word translated mediator here 
used of Christ is the same Greek word used in the Greek translation of the book of Job, where Job pleads for such a mediator to bridge the great gulf between himself and God. Here's what Spurgeon preached about Job's plea for a mediator or arbitrator from that passage in Job. Spurgeon said, In his mournful plight he sighed for an arbitrator who, while dealing justly for God, would at the same time deal kindly with poor flesh and blood, being able to lay his hand upon both. But, dear friends, what Job desired to have, the Lord has provided for us in the person of his own dear son, Jesus Christ. We cannot say with Job that there is no arbiter who can lay his hand upon both because there is now one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So, we need a high priest, one who is appointed to act on our behalf in relation to God. The Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament was a priesthood of men, of weak nature like ours, but in the fulfillment of that Old Testament type, the holder of the office is both truly God and truly man. Christ is a single divine person with two natures, true deity and true humanity. Let's look at these one at a time and ask, why do we need, in order to do the work of the high priest, one who is both truly man and truly God? First, why did our Redeemer need to be fully human? Gregory of Nazianzus, who was a 4th century bishop of Constantinople, had this maxim. He said, what he did not assume, he did not redeem. What he did not assume, he did not redeem. If the second person of the Trinity, the Son, did not assume human nature, then he could not redeem humans. The first Adam, fully human, in the Garden of Eden, brought the need for redemption by his disobedience. Because a human brought the need for redemption for humanity, the one who redeems must also be fully human. Let's go back once again to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll read verses 14 to 17. Hebrews 2, beginning of verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 16 says that Christ does not help angels. Fallen angels are forever fallen, and there is no hope for fallen angels. There is no mediator for angels. There is no priest that stands before God for fallen angels. When Christ came to be a priest, he bypassed the nature of angels altogether and humbled himself to take human nature alongside divine nature. The incarnation was not to help angels, but to help the offspring of Abraham, 
or the whole family of faith represented by the faith of Abraham. The word translated help is a strong word in the Greek, which in other contexts it means to grasp or take hold of something. Christ was incarnated to take hold of us, to give strong, saving help to us. Verse 14 says that the reason that Christ was incarnated was that in order to save humans, he must partake of flesh and blood. Only in that way could Jesus destroy the devil, the one who has the power of death. People are in slavery to the devil, and part of that slavery is fear of death. The devil is able to motivate the unsaved into evil because of the fear of death and the judgment that awaits. Because Christ is fully human, in addition to being fully God, he was able to die, and through that death, to destroy the power of the devil, to cause fear in the hearts of Christians because of death. Verse 17 then says, once again, for emphasis, that Christ had to be made like us. He had to be our brother in this respect, in having true human nature. Otherwise, he could not be a merciful and faithful high priest for us. Christ needed to be human, truly human, with all the suffering that we go through in order to have his mercy come from a place of true sympathizing with us. Whatever suffering you're going through, he was there. And he can truly sympathize and be of true merciful help. He's also a faithful high priest because he endured all the suffering in perfect obedience, obeying even to death on the cross. The need for our high priest to be truly human in addition to being truly divine is shown by the Old Testament law of the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. What is the Old Testament law of the kinsman redeemer? This was a provision in the law that a man who had the means to save a relative from a creditor and keep land in the family had a provision under the law to do so. There were requirements for this means of redemption. First, it had to be done by a close family relative. Then, of course, that relative had to have the means to redeem, since he had to pay the full amount of what this relative owed. The law of the kinsman redeemer is shown in a touching way in the book of Ruth. Ruth comes to Israel as a widow and a foreigner, a Moabite, but finds a husband in Boaz, one who is a close relative of her mother-in-law's family, and therefore he is eligible as a redeemer for Ruth. At the high point in the story, Ruth comes to Boaz at the threshing floor by night, surprising Boaz. I'm going to read from Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. It's the great high point of the account of Ruth. As Boaz discovers Ruth at his feet in the middle of the night, he asks this. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz would have had no right to marry Ruth and bring redemption to the family if he had not been related to the family, a kinsman. Christ in his human nature is our kinsman, and therefore he can be our redeemer. Once again, as Gregory of Nazianzus said, 
what he did not assume he did not redeem. To do the work of the high priest for us, to redeem us, Christ had to be our kinsman. Here's what Matthew Henry wrote about this passage. Thus must we, by faith, apply ourselves to Jesus Christ as our next kinsman that is able to redeem us, come under his wings as we are invited and beg of him to spread his skirt over us. Lord Jesus, take me into thy covenant and under thy care. I am oppressed. Undertake for me. I also want to draw attention to the response of Boaz in the next verse, verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz calls Ruth a daughter. In anticipation of redemption, Ruth is no longer a foreigner, a Moabite in the eyes of Boaz. She is family. So we've seen why Christ, our high priest, had to be truly human. Now, why did he also need to be truly divine? The reason that our high priest had to be fully divine was because of the greatness of the task of redemption. The Westminster Larger Catechism gives a full answer to the question, why did the mediator have to be God? The answer is, it was requisite that the mediator should be God that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. That's a long answer. And the short version is that a mere man could not have withstood the wrath of God poured out at the cross. Also, the value of the sacrifice at the cross had to have infinite value and effectiveness. A mere man could not have withstood the infinite wrath of God, the punishment for the great number of sins of God's people, all within the short span of time on the cross. Here's how the theologian Burkhoff phrased it. In a short period of time, he bore the infinite wrath against sin to the very end and came out victoriously. This was possible for him only because of his exalted nature. It was also necessary that the one to redeem us be fully God because his blood needed to have infinite value to atone for our sins. I'm going to read from Zephaniah. Chapter 3, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. This is a prophecy of the joy that was yet to come as a result of the saving work of Christ. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The prophecy is that God's people will sing and rejoice because the Lord has taken away his judgments from them. Then in verse 17, the prophecy speaks of the great work yet to come. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Our sin had placed us in a position of judgment that only the power of God could save us from. It took the divine person of the Son of God, one who is fully God and fully man, to give the sacrifice of infinite worth that it took to save us from judgment. The great task of redemption required a high priest that was not only fully God, but also fully man. What comes after this in verse 17 tells us of the satisfaction of Christ after he endured the cross, after redemption had been accomplished. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Christ exalted in the result of his mighty saving work after it was done. It reminds me of God's first creation, where after the sixth day of creation, after God had created all things, including man, the scripture says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The work of Christ in his office of high priest was to be both the offering, and he was also the offerer. He was the offering for our sins. He was also at the same time the one who was performing the work of doing the offering. The Old Testament Levitical priests were offerers, but the sin offerings were animals. Christ, in his priestly role, is both the offering and the offerer. To do all of this, he had to be fully God and fully man. He had to be fully man to be our kinsman redeemer. He had to be fully God because only God is mighty to save, with the power to atone for our sins and that blood being of infinite worth. We've come to the end of our time tonight, but I do have more to say in the next study about the atonement of Christ and his high priesthood, and the next time I'm up here will be uh, two or three months from now. This is the last in this particular unit. So the next time, I'll continue with this topic, then we'll move on after that to the application of redemption to us and what happens when a person is saved. But to end, I'll read from Isaiah chapter 52, verses 9 and 10. Here the Lord speaks by Isaiah of the days of salvation yet in those people's future. Here God speaks of the necessity of divine strength to accomplish redemption. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. In redemption, we see the power of the strong arm of the Lord to save. Only the one who is both fully man and yet fully God could accomplish redemption by the strong and holy arm of the Lord.